Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I created my first business, Honeycombers, when I was at the tender age of 28. And that business is a lifestyle guide to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and now employs over 30 people across four countries. Last year, I founded a new business called Launchpad, which is a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. Launchpad has members across six countries and runs around about 30 events every month. We run masterclasses, coaching and connection calls, as well as peer group sessions. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit line together to build better businesses. What does it really take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to find out. Before I get into it, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. Okay, let's get into it. Now, for anyone living in Asia, you've definitely heard of Potato Head, but you might not know just how much this business is doing in terms of sustainability and regeneration. Simon Pestridge is the Chief Experience Officer at Potato Head, and I just love this chat I had with him, which is all about how brands can create positive social change and really create long-term brilliance through culture and doing things with meaning. I think you'll enjoy this chat as much as I did. Simon, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled as well. Oh, let's get into it. So I'm really fascinated by your journey. It was 24 years at Nike, which is included working all over the place, like Jordan, Hong Kong, Australia, America, China. And then you jumped ship to join the Potato Head family. What made you make that change? I feel super lucky with the life journey I've had. The Nigeria and Jordan pieces were actually childhood, so my father worked construction. So we moved around the world a lot, and that took me to Hong Kong, where I finished high school. And then I actually joined Nike straight out of university in 1995 and uh, spent a couple of years there. And it was uh, amazing. I, was, I think I was employee number 85 in the Asia Pacific office. When I left two years later, there were about 400 of us. It was just the growth trajectory was crazy. But I put my hand up to go to a development program in the US, which was amazing. Kind of got my MBA at Nike headquarters. I was lucky enough to spend time in Australia. And then I actually moved back to Portland, Oregon. Then we moved to the UK, then back to Portland. And then we moved to China and then back to Portland. And then uh, at some point, it's time to draw a line under an opportunity and your time with a company and took some time off and then through mutual friends uh, got to meet the CEO of Potato Head who was looking for somebody to uh, come and help them evolve the brand from a kind of hospitality brand in Bali to a global lifestyle brand and so I said well I'll come for six months and see how we go and I was lucky enough that our CEO is an amazing person he sat down with me and he goes yeah I've got six months to see if you can become or want to become a full-time employee and I'm like how many CEOs say that to you and so that was the journey and we just went from there and it's been amazing 
Yeah, that is an incredible journey that you've had and how fortunate it has been for you to meet Ronald. So what have you brought from your corporate background to this kind of young, funky, sustainable, entrepreneurial organisation? I think I've brought a non-corporate point of view. So maybe that's uh, why I'm not a big corporation anymore because I'm not a very corporate person. But I think what you have to do is you have to bring all the kind of skills and resources and things you learn from a big organization and be able to implement them into a young entrepreneurial organization without bringing the bureaucracy, the meeting culture that seems to be so pervasive in big companies right now and really focus on the output versus the internal meetings to get you there. So I think I've bought probably a longer term planning point of view, the way we build the team over time, that type of thing. But honestly, I've just tried to be myself and have a major belief that culture will always beat strategy. And so the culture here is amazing. If we can continue to evolve that culture, the strategies that we put in place will just be great because they're kind of symbolic of who we are as a company. I love that focus on culture. And Potato Head has a really, I suppose, unique storyline. I mean, it started in 2010 really as a beach club with a very straightforward mission, which was really just to have a good time. And then I understand it evolved and it really changed to good times do good. And then it evolved from the norm of destructive hospitality and transformed into a new force of regenerative hospitality. And now, six years on, Potato Head's waste to landfill number is 5%. And with the assistance of the UN, Potato Head offsets its carbons and has become the first hospitality company in the region to go carbon neutral. Like, this is all really quite incredible. Was this set in motion and happening when you joined or what's your role been in this kind of transformation of the mission? Yeah, I, I'm lucky that I come in and I take over the great work that's already been done and our job is to take it into the future. So when you put out those stats, you know, it can all sound quite daunting and our job is to really break it down into smaller, shorter-term, tangible goals that we know will lead to something big. So. Let me just digress a little bit. I mean, any of us that have worked like in the last 10, 15 years, sustainability has been the buzzword that usually people's eyes glaze over because if you're in a big company, do you actually really have a role to play in how sustainable that company can be? What does sustainability actually mean? So we've actually just taken the recent shift to focus on regeneration. And the reason behind that to me is quite simple, but really important. So if the definition of sustainability is something that you can do forever and ever and ever, right, that is sustainable, then you really have to question how many people are as sustainable as they say they are, right? But that is sustainability. But isn't it more interesting to actually be able to take that into a virtuous cycle where regeneration is about whatever you touch, whatever communities you work in, the people, food that you procure, everything is actually positive and regenerating and leaving the earth in a better place than where you found it. So we just felt that, yes, yeah, sustainability is one thing, but we don't want to be doing something forever and ever and ever. We actually want to be improving constantly, improving the way we work, improving the communities we work in, improving the earth around us. And that to us is a bigger goal. It's a more challenging goal. 
But if we break it down and think about it every single day, we'll be able to look back in five years and say, oh, wow, look what we did versus trying to create too many big lofty goals that may seem unattainable and not able to get there. So that's the kind of future challenge. And that's what we're working on right now with the team. It's obviously not me. It's a, it's a big team that try and do this every single day with our partners in the community that we work with. That's awesome. And I just want to unpack that a little bit. So what are some of the smaller things that you're doing? And I I love the fact that the focus is on regeneration as opposed to sustainability. I think that's a really smart and it makes perfect sense. But can you give us some tangible examples? Yeah. So we work with a partner, Tim Fijal in uh, Aston Car Away, and he's been working with the local communities on this trail walk, a 10-day trail walk that goes from the north to the south of Bali. And along that kind of trail, there's different types of farming from cacao to rice, etc. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to be able to procure great rice organically produced from local farmers, taking out the supply chain in the middle that they could basically come directly to us. That means they're getting a bigger cut of the profit. They're able to buy more land and we're giving them a commitment to a certain amount of rice every single month so that they can plan ahead versus the regular supply chain of food. So we had to start because we consume a lot of rice here in, in, in the Dessa. We had to start with one restaurant, Kauma Indonesian restaurant, and all the rice we serve in that restaurant is from this regenerative farming technique on the Aston Cara Trail. And now they've been able to develop and grow and build the kind of amount of land they farm. And now we're in a place where we may well be able to procure all their rice to feed our staff because we go through about one and a half tons of rice a month just feeding our staff. So there's little things like that that actually you can see when you make that step, it's procuring for one restaurant farmers are making more money, they're able to plan, they're able to get more land, and therefore you are regenerating that community. It's getting better and better and better. Wow. What's next? Like, what's another example besides the rice? How else can you be regenerative in your practices? It's really about thinking about everything we're doing. So uh, you said the the stat, we're actually about, I think, 98% zero waste to landfill last month. We measure it every month and it goes up and down a little bit. But what we've realized is that, yeah, we have to take care of our own waste in our facility and what we can do with that waste, how we can turn it into beautiful objects. For example, why would we buy candles from outside when we can create candles from used cooking oil and we go through hundreds of candles a week, as it were? That is then we are actually creating more jobs internally to create those candles, we're still able to do it very cost efficiently and effectively and probably save money than buying them from third party. So that in itself is actually regenerating your own community because you are creating more jobs and opportunities for people. So one of our big goals right now is um, we have a lot of learnings from the journey of trying to get to zero waste for our own facility. How do we start to share that with other hotels, restaurants in the community? And so our next big kind of push is we're actually going to create our own waste landfill site so that we can start to separate and you know manage waste that does leave here, working with other partners, with other hotels, with other restaurants in the local community. So we can take the zero waste idea from our space and actually make it bigger so that all of maybe a Seminyak in 10 years' time is a zero-waste kind of entity. And then what you do with that waste, then you're therefore you're creating jobs 
hopefully you're creating beautiful products that can be sold. And that is, again, the cycle of regeneration where you are leaving your community better, you're leaving the earth better because less is going into landfill, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the one of the big things we're looking at for the next several years. And it is daunting, but when you break it down and when you start to work with the local community and see how interested they are in learning from you and we are in learning from them, everybody just gets better and better and better. And that's regeneration. Wow, that's quite amazing. And it's a long way from hospitality, isn't it? Like the vision is so great. I'd love to just crystal ball gaze, like what does Potato Head look like in 10 years' time? Like how do you see it unfolding? Yeah, I think I just got to, you know, shout out to Ronald, our CEO and founder, because he's made a conscious effort not to hire people from hospitality. So, you know, we have a leadership team from all different walks of life, and we're kind of proud of that. Yes, at the end of the day, we we serve guests every single day, and we have to give them an amazing experience. So obviously, there's people that are experts in hospitality that work for us, but our job is really to say, okay, how do we be a catalyst for change in the hospitality industry? And so if you crystal ball out five to 10 years, we would like to have more impact in different places all over the world. But where would that be? Would it be North America? Would it be somewhere in Europe, other places in Asia? We're looking at it right now, but as any brand grows, you have to stay true to who you were originally. And so we're really trying to make sure that we built this DESA over a 10-year period. Our job, first and foremost, is to make sure this is the most amazing experience that it can be, that we make sure we stay to this idea of a zero-waste facility, that everything we do is beautiful, sustainable, and we give you know great jobs to great people in Bali. And then as you grow from there, we want to share those learnings, and we're going to go to different places, and we'll find different waste management systems, at a different level of appreciation or different laws, different standards. But... We just have this, wherever you go, you should never sacrifice the consumer experience to be sustainable. You know, no consumer is willing to sacrifice. They don't want an ugly shirt or an uncomfortable shirt because it's sustainable fabric. They want a shirt that looks great, fits great, and is going to last really, really well. So we have this design or ethos, which is beautiful, sustainable. So everything we do will be beautiful first and it will be sustainable. You don't compromise on either. And we want to take that ethos out to the world. So we have lots of people visit us here and go, oh, wow, I wish I could take all this furniture and put it in my apartment in Brooklyn. Well, that could be a really viable business goal, but how do we actually do it? And at the end of the day, we're going to grow slowly because we can't compromise what we do here. But we're going to go and take our ethos to new places and make sure we're not driven by a financial model, but we're driven by a really good kind of corporate governance model, which is looking at the economic impact we can have, the community impact we can have, the environmental impact we have. And if we don't think we can live up to who we are, we shouldn't be going to places. So... You know, we're in the early stages of all that growth. We took put a big hold on it with COVID because we were shut down for just over a year, close to a year and a half. And now we're in that rebuilding phase and looking at all the opportunities in what is now a different landscape around the world. There's a lot there. I don't know where to start, but I'm really interested in what you just said right at the end that you were shut down for 12 months during COVID. So what happened to the company then? Yeah, it was uh, so we'd 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 uh, we'd nearly doubled our staff because we were opening a new the new facility, and all of a sudden, you know, we had no revenue, 
And when we first shut down, we thought, as the rest of the world did, oh, this will be a month, maybe two months. There's no way it's going to be three months. And there we were 15, 16 months later. So what we did is um, we did a couple of things. We obviously have a commitment to all the family that work with us. We had about 1,200 staff at the time. And we had to financially understand how we could pay people a certain amount, keep their health insurance. And actually, again, with the vision of Ronald, he said, you know, I think the biggest issue is going to be the food supply chain in Bali because all of a sudden nobody's ordering food. What's going to happen? And so we actually made a conscious effort to plant uh, farmland in an area where we were going to be building a new hotel. And we turned that into kind of a synthetic and regenerative farming that could turn crops every eight weeks or so. And we used that not only to give family members a role during the day that they could go out and, you know, farm the land, but we also used it to feed the family, took that product and product baskets to people that were in need and that couldn't go shopping and that kind of thing if they were struck down with COVID or isolating and that type of thing. And then we built that into making sure we could supply food packages and meals to orphanages and that type of stuff. And it gave us and the team a sense of purpose. And then what we also did is we introduced some training modules so that people could stay busy and come into work, even if it's just for an hour or two a week. Having that sense of purpose and somewhere to go was really, really important. So we kept the team going as much as best we could with kind of the salaries we could pay for the best part of a year. And then we did have to scale down and let a few people go when contracts were up. But we kept a core team of around 500 and then we built back up and now we've got about 850 staff today that are working full time and uh, the smiles on everybody's faces as tourism comes back is uh, infectious. Yeah, yeah. Bali has definitely had a rougher ride through the COVID journey and it has been a very tough place for business and it has had a very wild bounce back as well. So what a journey. And really interesting to see what you did during that time. Anyone who was running a business at the time can definitely relate to that moment where you look at your revenues and they're completely just bottomed out. So what's the biggest challenges when you're trying to do beautiful and sustainable? They're not really challenges. They're just opportunities. And it's about making sure that you don't compromise on either side. But when you clash, it's about clashing forces that come to, together to create objects of beauty, amazing new experiences for people. So we don't look at anything as a challenge. It really is an opportunity. And so I think we've looked at all the waste that comes into the the facility, either from us, from our guests. You know, every tourist in Bali creates about three kilograms of waste a day. And the idea we have is that it's not waste until it ends up in a landfill. So whatever we can do to stop it from going into a landfill is the most important thing. So we have a blueprint we created recently, which looks at waste and you separate it into organic and inorganic. And then you say, okay, what can be done with that? And so not many people know this, but pigs don't eat everything. You can't feed pigs chili. You can't feed pigs citrus. So what we actually do is we have a waste separation room in-house where we take all that waste and we separate it out and then we work out what we can do with it. So we compost the organic or we feed it to the pigs, whichever works best for the waste that we have. But then you also have things like oyster shells. What can you do with oyster shells? So we look at that as an opportunity. So, okay, you've got oyster shells, you've got another form of inorganic waste, styrofoam. What if you mix those together, you add some limestone in, and you can actually create a beautiful soap dispenser. And that's what we do. All of our rooms, the soap dispensers, 
the lotion dispensers are created by us in-house and we believe that we're only going to create something that is beautiful and sustainable therefore when the guest comes in they see what can be done maybe it changes their way of looking at things just a little bit but if it doesn't look right in the room we have to work until it does look right and it makes the room absolutely beautiful a place that somebody wants to call home for the next couple of days so that's why everything we look at is really an opportunity to change the game to change the industry and we are open source we will share what we do with absolutely anybody because we believe that is the way you move the world forward this podcast is brought to you by launchpad a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs if you're seeking a sounding board advice masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you Come to the launchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. Can we just go back to that incredible statistic? Three kilos of waste that a tourist creates every day. I mean, what are these tourists doing? How are we creating so much waste? Is it too many oyster shells? Are tourists consuming more than normal because they're on holidays? Yeah, I don't know what the, the statistic is, is how much waste you create at your home every single day. So I, don't, I can't compare it to that. But yeah, I mean, we go through the waste. <laughs> it doesn't sound pretty, but it's necessary. We go through the waste every day. And from plastic bottles to delivery to packaging on products, that type of thing, it just mounts up very, very quickly. And some of the guests ask us, they're like, oh, how come you co- you don't have different recycling bins in your rooms? How come it's just one bin? And the simple answer to that is, well, most people don't know how to separate their own waste. And there are so many rules of something that's touched food, something that hasn't touched food. We prefer to make it super easy for you. Give us your waste. We have people that will separate it, and then we will manage that flow from there. So its uh, I don't know if people come here and create more waste than they'd create at home, but there is just an enormous amount of plastic and packaging that comes with everything, and businesses have to change. You see it washing up on the beach all the time. The plastic bottle companies have to change. The way food is delivered has to change. And you need people that are going to not look at it as a challenge, but look at it as an opportunity to create something better. Because if you create something better, your consumer is going to go, yes, I want that, versus having to sacrifice their experience because nobody likes to be inconvenienced, sadly. Mm, No, that's very true. That's very true. It's so interesting. I mean, I've been to Potato Head many times and I don't think I've ever realised to what length you guys are going to to be regenerative and sustainable. Is that intentional? Is Is it a very softly, softly approach? Do you feel like customers can be turned away if your values are too loud and proud? Yeah, I think it comes back to basic human behavior. We want to give people an amazing experience. And if they look at our experience, say, I had a great time. And oh, by the way, did you know they do this? It just makes it even better. And I think that's the way that you build the brand and you build the business versus going at it the other way around. Because as I said, human nature is people want to have a good time. And we have this very simple belief that a small change repeated by hundreds of people 
is way more important than one big change made by one person. So if we can impact people's lives, and it honestly started by taking plastic bottles away from people as they came into our venue, and people would say, why? Like, well, because we don't agree with single-use plastic, but we will give you a voucher for water so you don't lose out. And then we had to figure out what do we do with those bottles, and we started making stuff. And so I, I think it is important that nobody feels they're sacrificing any part of their experience, that we still exceed people's expectations every day but they leave feeling a little bit better and learning a little bit about what we do. And I think that's the way it should always be. Mm, I love that. I have been enjoying your LinkedIn posts. You write quite intimate, deep stuff about your life and your mum. And and it's really interesting that you choose to share it. Is it partly um, cathartic or is it strategic or what's your thinking behind sharing so personally on LinkedIn? It's purely cathartic. It's, it's who I am. It's like, it's from my heart. I'm a very private person. I do very few interviews like this and my social media is private and I don't post very much on LinkedIn, but a few people said to me, you know what, it's uh, maybe you should get your voice out there a little bit more. And I only write when I'm in the zone. I like it and I have something that I think is interesting. And I think being British and not very confident in myself. Uh, it doesn't come out very often. I've got a few more posts in the back pocket, but yeah, it, it is purely cathartic. There's nothing strategic about it. I have some things to say, and if people find them interesting and like them, awesome. If they don't, there's plenty of other things for them to read. Well, I will definitely be reading. So I very much enjoyed them. And I do feel like as soon as people share some, you know, I suppose more personal bits, it, it is a lot more engaging. And what do they say? LinkedIn's a new Facebook, right? So so tell me, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to create a meaningful brand? I think the answer is in the question. You have to have meaning. This is my own personal philosophy. Maybe it's wrong. But there's companies and there's brands. Companies sell stuff. Brands inspire people to get to a better place in their life, in their world. And so you have to know what that space is in the market for you to be unique and distinguished. So if you can have a philosophy and an approach that you are going to build meaning and purpose into your brand from the very beginning, and you have a product that backs that up, you have a recipe for success. If you just have a product and all you're going to do is go digital fishing to try and pull people in to buy a product that has no bigger meaning or inspiration, then how sustainable is that for you? And it's, it's probably not. So the advice is like, what are you truly passionate about? How do you show that passion to the world? And make sure your product actually does exceed people's expectations and makes them talk about it. And that will, that will help you to create a community around you which are going to help you tell your story and grow at the rate you should grow. Mm, Simon, I love that. Very wise and detailed answer, but it all makes perfect sense. It sounds really easy though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's not at all. It's really hard. I mean, if, if it was easy, you could ask me a question and say, okay, what brands are amazing today? And I ask it in every interview I do with people and when we're interviewing new family members, and I'm, I'm actually doing it because of, am I missing something? Because I really don't think there are that many brands out there that, that everyone's just becoming a company trying to sell stuff and lure you in. And it's all about funnel, like get down to the bottom of the funnel, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, let's talk about the top of the funnel. How are we inspiring? How are we bringing more people into a world that we want to live in? How are we creating that world we want to live in? That's where the great brands live. And I just think there's very few of them out there right now. 
And do you have any that come to mind? Do you have any that inspire you? Well, actually, there is one that I think is very interesting, and that's liquid death. It's canned water. And I saw a comment on LinkedIn, which made me laugh. It was like, liquid death is one CMO away from dying. That's because they don't have a CMO. And it was like, oh, it's so true, because basically their founder is pouring his passion into that. And he has a point of view and he's sticking to it. And they call people out that tell them their product's bad and they electrocute them. If they, <laughs> like the, Some of the stuff they've done is super interesting. But you can cut, see it comes from a place that somebody goes, this is the business I want to be in. This is the brand I want to build. And I'm just going to enjoy it. And that becomes infectious for people because they're like, yeah, I want a part of that. There's nothing more to it. So that's one that stands out to me at the moment, which is going to be a fun ride to watch. Oh, I'm going to have to check them out. Now, to round out the interview, I'd really love to ask you what I call rapid fire questions. So let's start. I'm wondering, do you have any business advice or mantras that you kind of roll around in your head or live by? Yeah, I do. I think the one that has kept me true to who I am is this notion that you're never the smartest person in the room. And as soon as you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're done. So I was lucky enough to work all over the world. And I remember some of my first meetings in China, we had a big leadership team of 20 people, a couple of expats, a lot of Chinese locals. And I realized how little I knew about that market and how far ahead they actually were compared to the rest of the world digitally. And I realized very quickly I was going to be the dumbest person in that room for the next four years. And I had to make sure I got the very best and honest answers out of the team so I could make the decisions that I had to make. So to me, that's a really, really important one is as soon as you feel that you know, you're smarter than everybody else, you're going to lose your way and you're going to get blindsided. So always know you're not the smartest person in the room. Mm, I love that. I often never want to be the smartest person in the room because I feel like you want to surround yourself with smart people, right? Like if you're the smartest person in the room, you've collected some really dumb people to hang out with. (laughs) But yeah, I love that. Tell me, what does community mean for you and for Potato Head? Community is everything when it comes to building a brand. So for Potato Head, we wouldn't be where we were if we didn't have amazing community and partnerships because we can't do everything we have to partner with different people here in bali all over the world and it's when you bring new fresh ideas into your community that you can really accelerate change that's no different to working in a big brand you know what made nike footwear hot was the community of athletes that it built And the community of people in major cities that were like, that product is amazing. And if a brand ever forgets the people that made it, because the brand doesn't make itself, it's the people that make the brand. If you ever forget people that made your brand special and you lose that community, you're just talking to yourself. That's literally it. A lot of companies are talking to themselves today. They're so engrossed in their own world and their own meeting culture. They're not actually saying, okay, do we have a vibrant community out there that's engaging with us, that we're engaging with, and that actually we're together moving this thing forward? So without community, you have nothing. Mm, I love that. And I 100% agree. Tell me, what does good business mean to you? I think this is you know, the biggest opportunity. We have to reset what good business is. Good business shouldn't just be measured 
with financials and we have to move away from, you know, the capitalism that's what he's driven by. So good business is social, economic and environmental impact. And that's why we're so inspired by this idea of regeneration, because if you're regenerating your communities, if you're regenerating Mother Earth, if you're really thinking how you leave the world a little bit better every single day, those financial results are going to come. We have to hit the headwinds of investors who may just be looking at the bottom line. But you know what? That's our job. And I think we, as our older generation, we owe it to our kids and future grandkids to leave the world better and to actually partner with the younger generation to say, you know what, I have 30 years of business experience. You have 30 future years ahead of you. How can we get this thing together and actually really work together to create that world that we want to live in versus just thinking good business is about delivering numbers every year? Because if you do the, the former, those numbers come. It, it's just the truth. Mm, I love that. And I'm 100% on the same page. My next question is, if there was another industry that you could disrupt, what would it be? And I suppose for you guys, you started in hospitality. It sounds like waste is the next thing. Is there something else on the horizon that you can share? I think we would like to be more involved in people's lives every day. So right now we're a destination. But actually, how do we create an apparel brand or a footwear brand that actually uses waste and uses manufacturing techniques that actually show that beautiful can be sustainable. So that's definitely kind of in the short to mid future for us. And then also, how do we take some of the things we've been learning here in Bali, such as, you know, the pieces we're creating and actually hone them to a place where people would want them in their homes and we can get them to a level of quality where we can deliver them to people's homes. Again, it's those little bits of progress that can change the trajectory of how people think. So those are a couple of things. But as I said before, it's really about making sure we're great every single day and not getting too far ahead of ourselves. But we would like to be in new destinations with new product lines and all coming back to our original purpose and intent. Mm, Wow. A very exciting vision that you have. Tell me, do you have a favorite business book that's kind of shaped you? You know, it's actually recently, there's a, it's not a recent book, it's an old book, but I think the Patagonia story is absolutely amazing. And there's a very interesting brand that has stayed very, very true to what made it great in the first place. And they live and breathe it every single day. And what I love about that book is called Let Them Go Surfing, is how they very open about the mistakes they made and that whenever they did go wrong, they came back to why they first started the company. And the answers are always there. And I always say, the great brands that stand the test of time, like, you know what your North Star is. It's a little bit like using Google Maps or Waze. In today's world, you're going to have to take a different path, but you're still trying to get to the same place. And it's about having a management team and a leadership team that know where you're going, but are willing to take the risks to find the best way to get there, not necessarily the easiest way to get there, but the best way to get there. And I think that book was a really good example of that. And then you just see what they're doing by donating the company to the planet, et cetera. It's just being exactly true to what made them great in the first place. So I think that's really interesting. There's another one that I've used as the, in the LinkedIn post that Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy, that I, I found 
every page incredibly interesting. And there's a statement in there that there's two types of people in the world, people who want to be and people who want to do. And the people who want to be rise up the ranks really quickly and then tend to fail because they haven't built a community of support around them. And then there are people that do that simply go to work every day or get up every morning and want to do things that make a difference and be great. And they tend to get into leadership positions later, but stay longer because they have that community. So there's just two books that I kind of think about a lot at the moment. Yeah, cool, cool. I will put both those books in the show notes. I have read the Patagonia book and I, it's a small book, but it, it is a really remarkable. And I love the fact that it was actually written as a handbook to the staff. Like it had no intention to really be sold to anything, but just to tell their story internally. Another incredible story about the book. And my last question to you is at Launchpad and Honeycombers, we believe a rising tide floats all boats. And you probably know entrepreneurs that are creating good businesses. So I'd love to know who would you recommend that we should have on the show? I would say there's probably a one one really stands out. I don't know if you've spoken to them or seen that work, but there's uh, two brothers and a sister, Gary, Sam and Kelly, who run Sungai Watch, which basically started as a river damming project to try and stop the waste from actually getting into the oceans. And now they've turned that into a micro business. And, you know, they're, they're young. They were born and raised in Bali. They're great people super smart, learning their way in the business world and just driven by a passion that is absolutely amazing. And I think showcasing people like that is really, really important and building their support network is really important. And they're just, they're just doing good things every single day. Yeah, I have heard of Sungai Watch, so I will reach out to them. Simon, it's been a delight and such an inspiration to talk to you today and to really learn about the Potato Head story and your personal journey as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and, uh, yeah, good luck. Three things I learnt from this chat with Simon. I really liked the way Simon talked about creating things that are beautiful and sustainable and you can't compromise beauty or any element of a product for sustainability. It has to be both beautiful and sustainable. The second thing I loved was that you never want to be the smartest person in the room. And as soon as you think you are, you're done. Oh my God, that is so, so true. And the last thing that really stood out for me was how he talked about how community is everything for building a brand. And without community, you don't really have a brand. You just have a product. And whilst it's harder to build community around your business, it is a lot more long-term and sustainable. And it, it really is the difference between having a business that people love and really get behind to just having something that you're selling. I just loved this chat today and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you for listening to Good Business. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Selfishly, I created this podcast for my own personal growth so I could go deep with entrepreneurs that truly inspire me. Of course, I also wanted a wider listenership to think about having impact and our wonderful community at Launchpad where we're all aspiring to create better businesses together. If you have enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to leave a review or perhaps share this podcast episode with a friend. That's how podcast episodes get discovered. And I would love more entrepreneurs to think more deeply about their business and about 
creating a heart-led business with a bigger impact than just profit. And I'm sure you would too. So go ahead and post something on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook and spread the word. I will be forever grateful. Thanks again for listening. And I hope that you feel as inspired as I am to create your own good business.